The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jehovah, trust in the Lord forever for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting peace. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to give all of us an opportunity to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of God's Word. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come before your throne of grace because of the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he ever stands as our advocate and intercessor. Father, we thank you that we have your word that you have revealed to us, and that as we study your word, we can develop a storehouse of doctrine in our soul that God the Holy Spirit uses as the resource through which he guides and directs us. We utilize your word to make wise decisions that we can uh, go through this life producing something of skill and value that glorifies you. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, help us to understand these things, put them together so that it helps us grow, advance, mature as believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the last three weeks or so, we've been studying the issue of divine guidance. How do you know God's will? And we are coming to the end of this study. Last week we got very close, but we didn't have enough time to to go into all of the last illustration I wanted to use from the Old Testament, which is one of the more unusual episodes in the Old Testament, but it incorporates uh, all three kinds of divine will that we have uh, spoken of. But when we come to this question of divine guidance, as I pointed out, most Christians have really bizarre views of how to know God's will. And they come up with all kinds of, uh, of mystical ways to discern God's will. And somebody sent me a illustration of this the other day, which I just had to share with you because it's so personal. After starting a new diet, the old lady in the cartoon says... I altered my drive to work to avoid passing my favorite bakery. I accidentally drove by the bakery this morning, and as I approached there in the window was a host of goodies. I felt this was no accident, so I prayed, Lord, it's up to you. If you want me to have any of those delicious goodies, create a parking place for me directly in front of the bakery. And sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, there it was. God is so good. We, co- we are so silly sometimes in the way we try to figure out 
what God wants us to do and the way we try to get God to somehow conform His will to our will. We're not a whole lot different from Gideon as we saw in our study of Gideon a couple of weeks ago. So tonight I want to look at another instance of someone who tries to resist God's will because in the Balaam episode in Numbers chapter 22, we have an example of three different kinds of divine will. Remember I talked about the fact that we have the directive will of God or the revealed will of God or even the, or excuse me, not the, just the directive will of God, but we have the, the decreed will of God or the sovereign will of God which includes God's permissive will. The sovereign will of God is God's decree for what will take place in human history according to His foreknowledge. So we have the sovereign will of God. We don't know what it is until it happens. It includes good and it includes evil. That's why as a subcategory of God's sovereign will, we have the category of God's permissive will, what He allows man to do in terms of exercising his volition. But even when man has freedom to exercise his volition, that is under the sovereign will of God. So that you may want to exercise your volition freely in X direction, and God just isn't going to let you. Have you ever noticed that before? Now, some of you who have a uh, uh, predilection towards carnality at one time or another in your life have known that you really wanted to do something that you knew you shouldn't do, and God just wouldn't let you do it. That's that's called the overriding will of God. So we have uh, God's sovereign will. We have God's permissive will. We have God's uh, overriding will. And we also have God's decreed or His moral will, what He specifically tells us to do So those are really four kinds of divine will. God's sovereign will, which includes his permissive will. His permissive will, his uh, uh, God's moral uh, sovereign will, his, his permissive will, his overriding will, and his, his uh, decreed will. And we see all of these in this episode of Balaam. Now, the episode of Balaam really covers a lot of territory. It covers chapter, Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. And then, and even though we don't know it until later on, it really is the backdrop to what happens in Numbers chapter 25. So when you realize that in the book of Numbers you have four chapters that are related to uh, Balaam, the son of Baor, and and there are only let's see about uh, make sure I have it right 36 chapters in the whole book of Numbers, and five of them are dedicated to Balaam. You see that God the Holy Spirit seems to emphasize this event over above everything else that's going on in Numbers. He doesn't spend that much time on Kadesh Barnea. He doesn't spend that much time on Miriam and Aaron's rebellion against Moses. He doesn't spend that much time on Moses' uh, sin of disobedience where he got angry at the people and struck the rock for water instead of speaking to it as God commanded, all of which were sins that were determinative for the history of Israel. But then all of a sudden we come to Numbers chapter 22 and this bizarre character of Balaam. Some people think he's uh, demon-possessed. Other people think that he's just a rebellious believer. I mean, there, there's just, and, and the rabbis just thought he was almost the devil uh, embodied. 
and some of the ways in which they describe the things that went on here just just border on the on the bizarre and how they interpret how he did the divination. I'm not even going to uh, explain some of them. They're just just uh, they're they're border on pornographic. That'll give you a little bit of an idea. Now your imagination is just going to run wild, and and I've distracted you for the rest of the hour. Numbers chapter 22 gives us a story of Balaam. Balaam is a diviner. He's also called a. He's not called a prophet here. He is a diviner. Uh, uh, he is, and he is not a Jew. He is from. He is a cousin. He's from the land of Aram, back where Abram's descendants. Uh, live in the area that we've studied in our study of Genesis. In Numbers 22, we come to a situation where the Jews have come around from uh, Kadesh Barnea and they are about to enter into, into the land. Let me advance the slide here so we can come to our map. There. That's about the best I could do in getting a broad enough map for us. But down here in the lower left-hand corner, actually it would be just off the map, is the location of Kadesh Barnea. And as the Jews came to Kadesh Barnea for the second time, and this is in preparation for going into the land, they come across the southern part of Israel known as the Negev, cross south of the Dead Sea and God instructed them to completely go around Moab uh, and Ammon because God had guaranteed their inheritance. So they had to go all the way to the east side of Moab and come completely around Moab and as they came back after they'd gone north of Moab and Ammon, and they came back to the west to cross the Jordan River to go into the land of Canaan, they did battle with uh, Sihon and with Og. They did battle with Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, who was the king of Bashan, and they defeated both of them in uh, two battles, which secured for the Jews all of the Transjordan, that's the land across the Jordan on the east side of the Jordan. But it literally put the fear of God into the Moabites. And twice it mentions the fear and the dread that they felt because, of course, they were only 40 years removed from the Exodus and they had heard all the stories about what the God of the Jews, what Yahweh, the God of the Jews, had done to the Egyptians with the ten plagues and then the complete and massive destruction of the Egyptian army. In fact, you don't hear anything about the Egyptian army for about two to three hundred years in Scripture because the culture was just decimated as a result of God's judgment on them. And this just put fear into the hearts of all the Canaanites. And that's one of the weird little ironies that you get into here is when the Jews came to Kadesh Barnea and were sending the uh, 12 spies into the land, the 10 spies came back saying, oh, we can't do this. We're scared to death. There are giants in the land and there's way too many people and they have fortified cities. We can't do it. And, of course, when you know the story, Joshua and Caleb stood firm and they said, we can trust God. But here you have these 10 spies who are scared to death and they don't realize that the Canaanites had all heard the stories of what had happened just a year or two before, and they're more afraid of the Jews and of what their God is going to do to them than the Jews are. 
and they had this tremendous opportunity to take advantage of that and to defeat them, but because they failed to trust God, they had to spend another 38 years wandering around in the wilderness before they, the next generation would be allowed to make that cross into Jordan. So this is the setting of Numbers chapter 22, is the Jews have now come to the plains of Moab, which is located right about here, just to the east side of the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea. And it is there that Moses gives his parting speech to them, which is the last, his last sermon, which is the book of Deuteronomy. But that comes after the events that we're talking about. As they approach the plains of Moab, uh, plains of Moab, the king of Moab is scared to death, and so he decides that he's go- going to do something to destroy the Jews. And he is going to call. He knows that he can't defeat them naturally. He doesn't have the power to, and of course they must have this powerful God. So what he's going to do in typical pagan manners, he go- he's going to get some kind of magic or supernatural power to counter whatever the supernatural power is that the Jews have. And so he's going to go to uh, uh, a diviner up in who lives up in the area of uh, Aram and bring this uh, hitman in from outside to put a curse on the Jews to destroy them. And so in the background of all this, you have divination and you have magic and you have true the true form of prophecy versus a false form of prophecy so a lot of things that we've sort of studied in the last few months uh, comes together as a background in this situation let me just read the first four verses to you to get the setting numbers 22 1 then the children of israel moved camped in the plains of moab on the side of the jordan across from jericho now balak the son of zippor saw that all of all that the israelites had done to the amorites and Moab was exceedingly afraid of, of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Notice the double emphasis there on the fear factor. Verse 4, so Moab, that would be uh, Balak, the king of Moab. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. There's so many he's afraid they're going to uh, devour all the food, all the resources, and create just by the presence of uh, two to three million Jews on their border, they're going to wipe out all the uh, natural resources for food. So he sent uh, messengers, verse 5, they sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Now, before we get started, let's address a question that always comes up, and that is, is Balaam a believer? Now, if you don't know the story, what happens is Balaam is presented as as a diviner, as someone who has this magical power to bless and curse. This is expressed in verse 6. Therefore, in his invitation, Balak says, Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. Notice the pagan reliance upon magic and power there. That are sort of New Age mysticism in the Old Age format. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse 
is cursed. Now, does that verbiage sound familiar to anybody? That's the same verbiage we have in the Abrahamic covenant, and I think that the writer puts it that way, so it we recognize that that parallel there. We have to ask the question: is Balaam, a believer. Now, what Balaam's going to do is he's going to come at the he he he's going to have these three or four episodes. Finally, God's going to let him come. He's going to try to curse Israel. He's not going to be able to curse Israel every time he opens his mouth. A legitimate prophecy of revelatory prophecy from God comes out that doesn't fit the pattern of typical uh, divination. Uh, You have all kinds of divination that was used at this particular time, uh, but it doesn't fit any of those patterns. It is unique because God's way of revealing himself and communicating to man is always categorically different from the pagan way of doing things, which we'll see. And in the midst of this, we have the episode with Balaam and his talking ass, because God uses, performs this miracle and allows his donkey to talk to him when he's abusing him and mistreating him, and uses that to create a, a teaching moment in the life of carnal Balaam. So the question is, is Balaam a believer? And there's a tremendous amount of debate over this, because you always have one group of people who think that they look at Balaam, who is referred to and used three times in the New Testament as an illustration of, of evil. In fact, we come into um, we we've seen him a couple of times in Revelation chapter two, where he is is compared to the Nicolaitans, this group of people who are promoting false doctrine in the early church and. Uh, Pergamum and Thyatira. So, because he's used that way in Revelation 2, he's used that way in Jude as an example of evil, many people think, well, automatically that he was an unbeliever. However, there's some things that we need to pay attention to in the text. For example, first of all, in Numbers 22, verse 18, Balaam refers to God as, well, let me back up. Balaam refers to God as Yahweh my God. Look at that in Numbers 22:18. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of who? Of Yahweh my God. To do less or to do more. So he recognizes who Yahweh is and refers to him as my God. Second, he confesses his sin. When he realizes his sin after the episode with the uh, talking ass, he confesses his sin in Numbers 22:34. Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. He clearly recognizes who it is that's opposing him on his way to uh, Moab to curse Israel. Third, Balaam has a, expresses a desire to die with the righteous in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, that should be 23, verse 10. I pulled the wrong verse in there. Numbers 23, uh, excuse me, Numbers 23, verse 10 reads, Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. So he wants to die like and in the company of the righteous. And then in Numbers 24, verse 2, when he prophesies, 
Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes and what? The Spirit of God came upon him. And there is not a single example that I can find in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God comes upon an unbeliever. Now you have a number of examples, especially in Judges, where the Spirit of God comes on believers like Jephthah who defeats the enemy afterward, but then he makes this foolish vow to offer as a burnt offering whatever comes out of the door of his house to greet him when he comes home. When he comes home victorious, his daughter runs out the front door of the house to uh, greet him and welcome him home. And the text says he did to her as he vowed. He offers her as a burnt offering, very pagan practice. And that's the point, is that these leaders of Israel during the time of the judges were acting like the pagan nations uh, surrounding them. And then you have the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson several times, and Samson's a womanizer. He can't. He never f- met a fleshly desire that he didn't want to instantly give into. He's just a, a picture of an extremely lust-oriented, uncontrolled, unself-disciplined individual. And then you have Saul also. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and Saul ultimately becomes a believer and is, uh, ultimately becomes disobedient and rebellious and is disciplined by God, and the kingdom is taken from him. Now, people will try to argue that these aren't believers, but the text doesn't ever say that. In fact, with Saul, we are told not only that the Spirit came upon him and he prophesied, but we're also told at the end of his life when Sam, Sam, Samuel comes back from the grave, the only time that ever happened in history where you have a true example of somebody that God allowed to come back and speak, uh, Samuel came back and he said to, to Saul, Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And being with me must be taken literally to mean that they would be with Samuel where in, in paradise in the Old Testament, not in heaven, because they didn't get Old Testament saints weren't transferred to heaven until after the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. So we have this situation where you have pagans who are operating on paganism, but they they are believers. They become believers. And in our study of of um, Genesis just recently. As we were studying in Genesis chapter, let me pull that chapter up again. I believe it was in Genesis 28. Right. Genesis chapter, no, chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. We have this one verse. I pointed this out several weeks ago when we studied this that is not mentioned by most people when they talk about Abraham's background that Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees. And they always go to this passage in Joshua that talks about the fact that the uh, ancestors of Abraham worshipped the, the moon god back in Ur of the Chaldees. And so everybody camps out on that verse and talks about how Abram's ancestors were all uh, idolatrous and you know they, they followed in the idolatrous religion of the Chaldeans. But Abraham, for some reason, became a worshiper of God. And people just overlook verse 53 of Genesis 31, where Laban, who, remember, is a, uh, a cousin of Abraham, Abraham says to, I mean, Laban says to Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, who is Abraham's brother, and the God of their father, 
which would be Terah, judge between us. And in that statement, he clearly recognizes that Abraham's father, Terah, wasn't just this moon-worshipping, stargazing pagan in Ur of the Chaldees, but he also knew who the, the God of the Bible is. He knew who the Creator God was. He just had a syncretistic religion, and he was you know, mixed up and involved in paganism as well as understanding what the truth was. And this was typical in that era outside of, especially outside of the land. So now we fast forward from Abraham and about 2100 B.C. to uh, this episode with Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 and 1400 B.C. So we fast forward 600 years and there's still evidence and a witness of the true God outside of Israel. And Balaam is an example of that. It's just a confused, syncretistic religious system, but they, he is a believer and he does have an understanding who Yahweh, my God, is. But he's just, he's involved in carnality and pagan, paganism and this whole, uh, almost a, a cult that operated in his area of, of, uh, Mesopotamia. And we're told back in chapter 22 of Numbers that they sent to Beor, uh, Balaam the son of Beor at Pithor. And Pithor is located on the Euphrates River somewhere about where the modern border of Iraq and Syria exists. So it's probably a little bit north of there. And it was the uh, an ancient city that has been uh, identified called Pitru. Near, and it's near the archaeological site of Mari, which was discovered along the Euphrates in 1933. And we've discovered hundreds of documents from Mari which indicate that there was this divination cult that operated out of that particular region and they were producing all of these soothsayers, a bunch of gypsies, you know, they were fortune tellers and they were into uh, divination and hepatoscopy, which is reading a liver. They had this whole science where they they mapped a liver and they would divide it all up into uh, sections and when they would kill an animal and take the liver out and they would dissect the liver and they would read each section of the liver and then they would tell your fortune from it. So they were, you know, today we have, we're, we're so much milder. We have palm reading and tarot card reading and I don't see this so much. Maybe the FCC got a hold of them. It used to be you could just, every night if you stayed up late, you could find some 900 number you could call and you could talk to all kinds of people who would tell you your fortune. So you had the same thing in the ancient world, and and they had a reputation for being able to cast spells on people and to, you know, the whole occult magic thing where they would literally curse people. And so uh, Balak thinks that he can call on Balaam and bring Balaam over to curse the Jews, and he will destroy the Jews. And in this whole episode, you see this polemic that's going on between Yahweh, the God of of Israel, and the false gods of the nations. Now, you know what I mean by a polemic. This is like a debate. It's a war. It is a God constantly is juxtaposing his truth and his reality over against the fabrications of paganism. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. Most of the time, it is subtle, and it gets lost in translation. 
But the average English reader picks up his Bible and starts reading Genesis 1-1 and reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And then we start reading it on the first day. He uh, separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day and the darkness night, and it was morning, and it was evening, and it was morning day one. And we read this and we say, well, isn't that nice? On the first day God creates light and separates it from the darkness. But if you were a Babylonian in the ancient world reading that, you would be you would be thinking in terms of the Babylonian gods that you were worshiping, and you were seeing that oh, this god of the Jews is the creator of my god of light. See, there's the this subtle polemic going on where the the god of the Bible is constantly being shown to be in control and superior to whatever the gods and goddesses are of the pagan culture there. This because we're so unfamiliar with the culture of the ancient world and the religious systems of the ancient world, we don't catch these digs that the Holy Spirit makes in almost every chapter against the thinking of the various pagan systems all around Israel. And I remember when I was, uh, I must have been first year I was at Dallas Seminary, I read a master's thesis that was written on the polemics of Genesis 1 against the, relig- the, the Babylonian gods and goddesses. And that's when I first opened my eyes to this, this uh, whole thing. And then when you come to Exodus and you have the ten plagues, and when God uh, turns the Nile uh, to, to blood, it's a polemic that God of the Jews is superior to the Nile God of the Egyptians. And every one of the plagues has something to do with the God, the God of Israel demonstrating his superiority over some god or goddess in the Egyptian religious system. So you constantly have uh, the scripture making these sometimes subtle, sometimes more overt statements of how God and the whole thinking of the, the scripture is superior to the thinking and the gods and goddesses of the, of the pagans around him. And you even see that in the, in the names that are used here. For example, in uh, the name of Balaam, uh, we have the Hebrew word bela, meaning which means destruction or devouring, in compound with the Hebrew word am, meaning people. And so his name means the destroyer of the people. But Balaam wasn't a Jew, was he? He was from uh, Aramea. So in Aramaic, his name probably meant uh, the divine uncle who brings forth. So it was a very positive name. In the ancient world, they had names that meant things and revealed something about their character. And so this would say something about this is a man who's very productive and, and a source of uh, blessing for those around him. And the Jewish writers would take his name and they would make a pun on it. And so in Hebrew, his name meant the destroyer of the people. And he is the, going to be hired by by Balak, the king of Moab, and Balak means the devastator. And so here the devastator hires the destroyer, and the god of the Jews wipes out both of them. So you see this this play that's going on in the background that we miss in English because we were just so divorced from the culture and the language and everything else, but God is constantly using... Uh, all kinds of levels of communication in the text to demonstrate the superiority of his power and his and his purpose. So, the the uh, 
king of Moab calls for Balaam and wants Balaam to come and curse Israel. And he, before he does that, God appears to him. Verse 9, Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, is sent to me saying, uh, and it repeats what he was asked to do, to come and curse the Jews. And then in verse 12, God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, what kind of will of God is that? Let's think about this. Is this the sovereign will of God? Is this the permissive will of God? Is this the decreed will of God? Or is this the overriding will of God? This is the decreed will of God. God is stating specifically through special revelation to Balaam that he is not to leave home. He's not to go with them. He's not to go and to curse the the Jews. So the next morning Balaam gets up and he has to be obedient to, to God. When God speaks and you know it's God that's speaking, you can't do anything else. And he says, go back to your land. The Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And so they go back to Balak. Now this must have taken some time because it's about three or 400 miles from Moab to uh, Pithu where he's located. Pithor, where he's located. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak, said he refuses to come. Balak sent more, sent another delegation to him. And once again, they uh, they're, now they're going to offer a bribe. Say, I will honor you greatly. Honor in the scripture always has to do with pay. Just as a side note, when it comes over into into First uh, Timothy, Paul says an elder is worth double honor. That doesn't mean that you're just nicer to the pastor. It means that he's supposed to get twice the pay of anybody else. Just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> That's how honor is used in the Scripture. Honor is referred to giving financial remuneration to somebody. So I, he says, uh, I will certainly honor you greatly. In other words, I'm going to give you a big paycheck. If you will come and curse Israel, there will be a great financial reward for you. Therefore, please come curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or to do more. So he recognizes the authority of God and that God has, de- has given him direct revelation that he can't do that. So he says, please also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. So now he's going to start bargaining with God. He's going to see if he can't find a loophole somehow in God's decreed will, which will allow him to to go with the people. And so God came to him at night in verse 20 and said, if the men came... Uh, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So now what do we have? What kind of will is this? Is this the sovereign will of God? Is this the permissive will of God? Is this the decreed will of God? Or is this the uh, overriding will of God? What do we have here? We have almost a correlation between the permissive will of God and the decreed will of God because God's revealing what his permissive will is here. I'm going to allow you to go with him. And, of course, Balaam wants to um, take advantage of that. He's saying, well, if I can just get down there, then I can I go, go ahead and curse Israel. And God recognizes that's what he is doing. So now in verse 22, the then God's anger which is not the fact that God suddenly realized what, 
what Balaam was going to do and was going to take advantage of him, but the anger of God always has to do with the uh, condemnation of divine justice. God, in his omniscience, knew a millennia before this that Balaam was going to try to take advantage of God's permissive will. So if God's always known that, has God always been angry? I mean, that's where you get into this silliness of thinking that these emotions in God are what we think of as emotion. The phraseology wrath of God is, for the most part, a uh, an anthropomorphism or anthropopathism in the Scripture used to express the severity of God's judgment. Just as we might talk about going to uh, going to court and we'll say, "Well, the judge threw the book at me." Well, we don't literally mean that the that the judge picked up a law book and threw it at us. We're using that as an expression to indicate the severity of his judgment, that we experienced the wrath of the court, but we didn't have a judge that got angry at us because nobody would want an emotional judge. We want a judge who's fair and objective, even if he does throw the book at us. So God's anger indicates that God in his justice now is going to condemn or judge Balaam. And he, God's anger, he's going to discipline Balaam. God's anger is aroused because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So he's going down along the path and the angel of the Lord appears uh, in front of him, but only the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is uh, pictured here as large and powerful and dressed like a warrior. And the, angel, the, the donkey, of course, is... Is, is no dummy and wants to get out of the way. So the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went to the field. And so Balaam, you know, so we see he's impatient, he's angry, he, he, he wants to get after that money, and so he starts beating the donkey to turn the donkey back into the road. And the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on one side, a wall on the other side, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, and again pushes, tries to shy away, goes up against the wall, crushes Balaam's foot. And then there's a third encounter in verse 26. The angel of the Lord went further, stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either the right hand or the left hand. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. She just refused to go forward. And Balaam's anger is aroused. He strikes the donkey with a staff. So the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, here's the donkey talking. There's just such great humor in this. I mean, the writers of Scripture, just they, they, they're just making such a fool out of Balaam in all of this and, and portraying him in this, in this uh, uh, with such a lack of respect that he's just such an idiot that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said, What have I done to you that you've struck me three times? And Balaam doesn't blink. <laughs> he starts talking to the donkey. And he said, Because you've abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for I would kill you. Isn't that typical? We get mad at somebody because they're doing the right thing, and we just get mad at them because they won't let us do what we want to do. And so he's blaming the donkey, and the donkey says, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Did I ever do anything like this to you before? No. Don't you think there might be a good reason that I did something like this? I've been protecting you. At that point, the angel of the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and the, he sees the angel of the Lord standing there. Well, the point of all of this is to indicate something about the relationship of the beast of burden who is to serve Balaam 
and an analogy being drawn in Balaam's dense head that he is to serve God and do what God tells him to do. And so uh, the angel of the Lord questions him, says, why have you struck your donkey these three times? And the other side of this is, the donkey hasn't done anything wrong to you. Why have you struck him three times? Okay, Israel hasn't done anything wrong to you. Why do you want to go curse them? There's this, this analogy there. And in this, what God is doing is he is going to override Balaam's will. What does Balaam want to do? Balaam wants to get the money and curse Israel. But God is going to demonstrate his sovereign will is not going to include permissive will for him to curse Israel. And that God is, whatever Balaam does, God's going to override his volition so that Balaam is going to want to curse, but what comes out of his mouth is a blessing from God. So we see how God will completely override our will at times if we're wanting to go in the wrong direction. He did the same thing with Jonah. Jonah tried to head west, and God worked through the circumstances to give him a a water taxi ride back east. So we come down to the first prophecy. I'm just going to skip over these. One day I'm going to come through and spend a lot of time exegeting through this. This is one of the most fascinating episodes in the Old Testament because of the prophecies that are included here. But God does not allow Balaam to curse Israel. And what sets up behind all of this is that Balaam is functioning like a typical uh, religious seer, a, a religious diviner. He's, and we see this juxtaposition that occurs between the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament to prophets versus the way these false religions were picking up on uh, divine revelation. This is indicated in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 and following. There's a warning to Israel. Remember, Deuteronomy is a sermon from Moses. It's given just after these events took place. Deuteronomy 18, 9, God says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, Or one who practices witchcraft, what was Balaam doing? With all this divination and everything, he's practicing forms of demonism. uh, One who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium, a necromancer or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. Medium, spiritist, one who calls up the dead are all talking about the same kind of activity. Somebody's trying to contact uh, someone who's already dead, a, a necromancer. So Deuteronomy clearly prohibits this kind of activity. And this is how Balaam attempts to manipulate God to uh, have the prophecy. In chapter 23, verse 1, Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Now this doesn't fit any of the types of offerings that are identified in Numbers 1 through 5. It's not a burnt offering like God defined a burnt offering. This is a perverted form of a burnt offering. But it, we know from the 
various documents that these diviners, these magicians in Mari used, that this was standard operating procedure. This is how they were manipulating the gods, is through these kinds of, of sacrifices. And they mentioned the same thing of building seven altars and having seven sacrifices for, uh, in order to impress the gods and manipulate the god to, to speak through them. So Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and, and they offered the bull and the ram on each altar, and then... God speaks to Balaam. He meets him in, in verse 4, and he puts a word in his mouth and says, this is what you'll speak. And he can't say anything else. So he goes back, and notice it never uses the word prophecy. It says oracle. Balak the king of Moab has brought me from Aaron from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. So he's just rehearsing what has happened historically that Balak has called upon him to come and curse uh, Jacob and denounce Israel. It says, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, from the hills I behold him there, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations, who can count the dust of Jacob or number one fourth of Israel? What was God's promise to Abraham? That the, his descendants would be more numerable than the sands of the seashore and the, and the stars in the sky. And so the first prophecy is simply a statement of how God has blessed Israel. But that's not what he intended to say. He was supposed to curse him. And so uh, Balak gets angry with him and says, okay, come to another place and where you can look at him from another direction and we'll do this again. And the same modus operandi, to, which is typical of, of the pagan religions. And again, God gives Balaam another message. And so he takes up his oracle in verse 18. Notice one of the verses here is one that should be familiar to you. He says, Rise up. Balaam is speaking. He says, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is speaking. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, Will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? How many times have you heard that? You never knew where it came from. That was right out of Balaam's mouth. That was one of these uh, prophecies he gave, that, that the recalcitrant prophet. He did not want to uh, give this prophecy. And he goes on, and again, he blesses the strength of, of Israel. And he says in verse 23, For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, oh what God has done. In other words, there is such a contrast that God is going to draw in what happens in Israel and the whole modus operandi of everything that happens in Israel's religion is so different from what happens in the pagan religions. And we've studied this in, on Thursday night in, uh, in, in Hebrews several times that while there are similarities between how God revealed himself to the prophets in the Old Testament, it's not to be taken as the same thing as what happens in the pagan religions. And you so often will see people come back and they'll say, well, in the Old Testament, they had this sort of mystical encounter with God. And I, I've used this quote before, and it's a great statement. Uh, a tremendous Old Testament scholar by the name of Leon Wood, he's probably with the Lord now, was a professor of Old Testament up at uh, Grand Rapids Baptist College, wrote several commentaries on the Old Testament, on Daniel, on Judges, and Old Testament history of Israel. And he wrote an article addressing the issue of did, was the, the 
modus operandi of the prophets in the Old Testament mystical. And he says, or was it ecstatic? He said, in ecstatic frenzy, the subject seeks to withdraw his mind from conscious participation in the world so that it may be open to the reception of the divine word. In other words, there's a methodology that they use that they're going to get themselves in some sort of altered state of consciousness through various types of of uh, mechanics, dancing, seeing later on in the Greek fertility religions, they do it by getting drunk, and you you see the same thing among the Sufi Muslims, where the whirling dervishes, where they work themselves up to get into this state where the God will speak through them. Leon Wood goes on to say, to achieve this ecstatic state, poisonous gas may be employed. This is what happened at the Oracle of Delphi, and it's been discovered that there was this hole in the, that goes way down inside the mountain there, and that in the ancient world they supposed that some kind of gas, noxious fumes came out of there that uh, put the Oracle into some sort of uh, a hypnotic state or hallucinogenic state. Uh, poisonous gas may be employed, a rhythmic dance, or even narcotics. The desire is to lose all rational contact with the, girl, with the world and so make possible a rapport with the spirit world. And then the spirit would speak through them. Now, God is showing in this episode that how God communicates to man is radically different from all these human viewpoint religions and expectations. Don't try to interpret the revelatory actions of God in the way that you see it expressed with uh, Joseph Smith or Muhammad or any of these so-called uh, religious leaders who've received revelations uh, from the deities in the past. Wood goes on to say, Already before Israel's conquest of Palestine, Moses calls himself a prophet, a Navi, and states that a prophet like himself would arise after him. He uses the singular Navi in reference to this one, and so it is correctly taken to mean Christ is the supreme prophet thus to arise. But the context shows that he has reference in a secondary sense also to prophets generally who should appear in later history. Moses himself clearly was not an ecstatic. This is where he makes his point. Hence, if prophets to follow him were to be like him, neither would they be ecstatics. So there's this, there's this difference that occurs. And that's what God is showing in, and saying through Balaam in this second prof, prophecy that he, he doesn't use the MO of sorcery and divination, all the religious uh, modus operandi. Then there's a third prophecy that's ex- given in chapter 24. Again, they try to manipulate God to allow Balaam to uh, curse Israel. But no, God is just going to bless Israel through Balaam. And his third utterance, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God. Notice, he hears the words of God. He's not, this is totally different modus operandi here than what he was used to. He's like the witch of Endor. Remember the witch of Endor at the end of Samuel has been going through this typical medium magical operation and working with a with a ventriloquist or uh, ov demon in the Hebrew and gastromuthos demon in the Greek ventriloquist demon and what typically what happened at that time was there would just be this disembodied voice that would come like a like a ventriloquist and this was the dead person speaking. And so when she cast her spell, and instead of hearing a voice, Samuel appeared, she was shocked. 
because this wasn't how it was done. Well, that's what's happening with Balaam. He's so used to using the typical magical divination practices to get the gods to speak that all of a sudden when Yahweh, God of Israel, is speaking through him, it's just a completely different kind of thing, and he uses different words to describe it. And therein he blesses uh, Israel and talks about their future blessing and prosperity and concluding in verse 9 by saying, Blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. And then he, we, I'm just skipping over the highlights here. In the last prophecy, he completely, by this time, he completely gives up the regular uh, pagan uh, method of operation and he just goes up on a hill overlooking uh, the people and then God gives him his fourth prophecy. And this was the, one of the greatest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And in verse 17, he says, I see him, but not now. He's talking about the Messiah. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult and Edom shall be a possession, Seir also his enemy shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. This is one of the great messianic prophecies linking the idea of a star. And what do we see in Revelation 22? Jesus is the great morning star. And what do we see that announces the birth of the Savior is a star in the sky? It's not a natural star, because a natural star can't point out a house, which is what that star did. That was a representation of the uh, Shekinah glory. So four times, Balaam has to say what God wants him to say. It's God's overriding will. Now, uh, in conclusion, what do we see? In decision-making, let's put all this together and wrap it up very quickly. First of all, when you have to make decisions, tough decisions in life, the first thing you do is you commit it to prayer. You go to the Lord in prayer that God will make clear to you all the data, all the facts, all the evidence that has to be made clear. We have promises such as, um, where are we? First Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Whatever is concerning you, whatever you have to make a decision over, put it on the Lord because he cares for us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing. Don't fret, don't worry over these decisions. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide and direct you in your decision-making. Is that what that says? I just want to see if you're still awake. That's not what it says, but that's how so many Christians read it. The peace of God will guide and direct you in your decision-making. That's not what it says. It says the peace of God will guard or protect your hearts and minds. God will protect you. But it's not a, this, the last part of this verse isn't a guidance mechanism. The issue is committed to the Lord in prayer. Make sure you're in fellowship. That's the second thing. Confession, 1 John 1, 9. Make sure you're in fellowship as you go through the decision-making process. Third, evaluate your motives in making the decision. You want to do choice A. That's what you really want to do. Why? What are your motives? 
evaluate your lust patterns of your sin nature. You know it. You can be honest. Are you being motivated by power lust? Are you being motivated by greed, materialism, money lust? Are you being motivated by sex lust? Is there any sin that's underlying your desire to do that? If not, great. Move ahead to the, uh, to the fourth point. Fourth point is to search the wisdom literature of the Scripture to see if that category is addressed. Is it financial? Does it have to do with family? Does it have to do with education? Does it have to do with uh, taking care of uh, friends or family? Whatever it may be, you can go through the Proverbs, and this is something that anybody can do, is read the Proverbs. Each Proverbs deals with a different category. Just get out a, a, a spiral notebook and start labeling the categories and write out all the proverbs under each category. Does it have to do with money? Does it have to do with work? Does it have to do with family? Does it have to do with uh, uh, lust? What, does it have to do with wisdom? Whatever it has to do, you can go through and categorize all the different proverbs and then go back and use that as something to search through when you have decisions to make. Fifth, after you go through the wisdom literature, search the scriptures to see if there are any biblical mandates that relate to the area that you're making a decision on. Are you having to make a decision about money, purchase of a home, indebtedness, uh, moving, uh, family responsibilities that may be involved if you move out of, a, out of an area, whatever it may be. List the biblical mandates which may be involved. Sixth, answer key questions related to your spiritual life. Will this enhance or detract from my spiritual life and spiritual growth? In what ways can this decision impact my ability to serve the Lord with reference to my own spiritual gift? We all have spiritual gifts. A lot of people say, well, I don't know what mine is. Probably you have a gift of service, which is a broad category, and you can operate in service in many different ways in a local church, in music, in Sunday school, in cleaning the place, whatever it may be. There's lots of different ways you can utilize that gift, that spiritual gift of service. But if there, there are some decisions people make in life that they just can't do anything. They can't ever utilize their spiritual gift. And then one day they wake up and they're 45 or they're 50 and they go, I have the gift of pastor teacher. Oops, what am I going to do now? Well, it's too late because you didn't make good decisions when you were younger. You were more concerned about other things. So ask this question, especially when you're young and you're working through, through key issues that impact the rest of your life. How can this decision affect the way I serve the Lord in my local congregation? Uh, can, another question, can this decision, can moving, can, whatever it may be, can doing this that I want to do become a distraction which interferes with my priority to learn doctrine and grow as a believer and be involved in my local church? I mean, it may, it may be something that, that be, be involved in some hobby. There may be some hobby, something you really enjoy doing, but you know that if you pursue it, that it it will run the risk of being a major distraction later on in life. So you choose not to do it, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because you realize there's a higher priority. Three more things real quick. Seventh, list the pros and the cons in the decision. What are the strengths and the weaknesses? If I go for decision A, what, what do I get out of it and what might it cost me? If I go with decision B, what do I get out of it and what might it cost me? What's, what's the upside? What's the downside? Uh, think about what will happen if the results of the decision don't come through. Think about what will happen if you make this decision 
let's say you have a job opportunity. You say, okay, I'm going to take this job. I'm going to go across the country, go to work for this company. They're, they're promising me a tremendous salary, tremendous opportunities. It's just what I've always wanted. This has got to be God's will. Well, what happens if three months from now the company gets sold and the position is, is, is removed and you don't have a job anymore? How are you going to deal with that? Think about the, what happens if you make the decision and you think that by doing X you're going to get Y, but what happens if you never get Y? And it turns out to be a lot worse. What happens if you think, you know, I need to marry this person, but three months after you get married they're involved in some sort of horrible accident or they get a disease and you end up being a health care taker for that person for the next 40 years. Think about that. Nobody ever thinks about that when they get married. You know, when you stand up there... And you go through the wedding vows, you say, for better or for worse. What people hear is, for better. For prosperity. And, and health. You know, they never hear prosperity, adversity, sickness, bad thing, for worse. They never hear that part of it. But that's what's in those vows. So think about what happens if you make the decision and nothing you want from that decision ever comes to pass. Is it a wise decision? Eighth, seek advice from mature, experienced believers who have expertise in that field. If it's a financial decision, if you're purchasing a home, if you're trying to make a decision about where to go to to college or a career decision, whatever it may be, Look for mature believers who have expertise in that area, who can give you uh, wise advice, questions to get answered, things to think through so that you can uh, get more facts. And finally, as long as you're trusting God, have a, have a sound biblical motive to make a wise decision to enhance your spiritual life, serve God, be involved in the community, and the then the decision... and Excuse me and the decision does not entail any kind of carnality, then it's within God's decreed moral will and go for it. As long as you're in fellowship, as long as your motive is right, as long as you're not being motivated by sin nature, lust patterns, your desire to serve the Lord, you're not violating any uh, mandates or prohibitions in Scripture, then go for it. But realize that even when you make a decision and you do it for all the right reasons and you take into account all the facts that in God's sovereign will and in his overriding will, you may make decision X and never get what you want because God wanted you to be in that position to take you through a test of adversity. So just because things don't work out the way you thought they would doesn't mean it wasn't God's will or you made a bad decision. Because sometimes a good decision puts you in a position where God wants you to test you so that you can grow and mature as a believer. Okay, with that, we've pretty much covered the territory on understanding the will of God. We'll come back next time, and we will see how this works out in the closing stages of Jacob's life as he's leaving uh, Padan Aram and headed back to the land of Canaan, the land of his fathers, and he gets specific 
divine revelation as to where he should go and what he should do. Father, we thank you that we have your word to go to as a guide and direction in our life that is in your light that we see light. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we studied this evening, that they would uh, build in our souls a frame of reference for wise decision-making. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.